want to look at this verse tonight, Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I'll read it again. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So this verse tells us that God sent his son to die for us. And the words put forward in the Greek language actually indicate that God appointed him to be offered up and presented him to be exposed publicly. In other words, Jesus was not permitted to die with dignity in privacy, maybe just surrounded by a few loved ones. His death was an exhibition for all to see. Many years later, in the book of Acts, chapter 26 and verse 26, Paul was preaching the gospel to King Agrippa, and he said, For this thing has not happened hidden away in a corner. Everybody knew it. Everybody saw it. So Jesus not only died for us, but I want you to understand this. He was openly put to shame. He was publicly humiliated, made a spectacle before his enemies. The unruly crowds gawked as he struggled for breath and as he bled to death. Even those who were crucified alongside him, the Bible says, they reviled him. They criticized him in an angry, abusive manner. In Matthew 27, in verse 39, we read, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. I mean, strangers, just strangers in the town, as they walked by the place where he hung on the cross, they ridiculed him spitefully, shaking their heads, in disapproval, as if to say, ah, you, you're nothing. What a, what a disappointment you are. See, many people in Nagaland, they live in a shame-based culture. Honestly, a lot of people would rather die than be embarrassed. Some people, you know, if, if even in a... In a, in a innocent manner that their name was called during the church service or something, they would be so embarrassed they might not come back to church for a couple of weeks or something like that. I mean, some, some, some women won't come to church if they have like a, a little blemish on their nose that morning or, or, or if they have a run in their stockings. But Jesus was publicly humiliated and debased for you. 
Come on, some people are ashamed to praise his name, but he wasn't ashamed to die for you. In Psalm 69, verse 20, we read these, these words. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there's, there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. There was not one person in the teeming crowd of onlookers who offered even one word of condolence, not even a sympathetic look. Instead, they cursed him as an evildoer. They didn't have coroners. They didn't do post-mortem. But if they had, maybe the death certificate would read, cause of death, a broken heart. But Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 tells us this. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. That means he was rebuked and he was upbraided so that you and I could have peace. A peace that passes understanding. The peace of God. The Hebrew word, of course, is shalom. Well-being. Soundness. Even prosperity. So that in your heart, nothing would be missing. Nothing would be broken. And in your life, everything would be as it is supposed to be. He did that for you. I said he did that for you. Hallelujah. And you see Psalm 69, which we quoted just a moment ago. Psalm 69 is not merely referring to the hardships that David faced. For in verse 21, the next verse, we read verse 20, but in verse 21, it says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. This is talking about what happened on the cross. So those supposedly devout and religious people did not even have the decency to offer him a sip of water. He offers the world an unending spring of living water. They gave him vinegar on a sponge. The angry mob probably gave him something called pasca. <clears throat> pasca was um, an acidic concoction. It's a mixture of several things. It's, it's very strident. It's, it's, it's very bitter. It tastes like vinegar. <clears throat> and this was primarily consumed by soldiers. That's interesting. It was the preferred drink of soldiers. That's why it was nearby the cross. And during military campaigns... Emperors and generals 
in the Roman Empire, would often drink pasca with the ordinary soldiers to show solidarity with them before going into battle, to show that, hey, I'm with you. We're together in this. And that day Jesus, our king, identified with all humanity by tasting the bitterness of death for us. Are you out there today? Psalm 22 also gives us a prophetic picture of Christ's sufferings. In verse 16, we read, For dogs encompassed me, a company of evildoers encircles me. And in case you're wondering, is that really talking about Christ? The next phrase says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Those people, they surrounded him like ferocious beasts, like rabid dogs growling. You know, have you ever walked through, you know, your colony or someplace and some dog comes charging toward you, growling, barking at you? You know, you, you feel apprehensive. You feel like, you know, uncomfortable. How about a pack of dogs? That's what he experienced times 10, times 100. Hmm? And the hatred that they showed for him was irrational. It didn't even make sense because it was demonically inspired. All of hell was venting its fury on him. Those people, they were just pawns. You know, it's a sad thing when you realize it can happen even as a Christian when you realize you've been used by the enemy, that you have allowed the enemy to speak through you, to give you words, to to take actions. That's a terrible thing. No wonder he said, they know not what they do. Forgive them. Hallelujah. And Isaiah 53, verse 12 We read, and he was numbered with the transgressors. What does that mean? He was treated like a common criminal, worse than a murderer, you see. And what wrong had he done? What was his crime? Only this, that he healed their sick, delivered the oppressed, worked miracles for them, and spoke the truth of God in love. And for that, they nailed him to a tree. You think about injustice. It was mentioned earlier this evening, and similar thoughts sometimes arise in our conversations. I have to tell you this. Sometimes we hear people in the world, or some in the church, talk about, well... You know, they sort of suggest God's not just or, you know, they, they want to blame God. They want to blame God for all of their problems. <laughs> I mean, I wonder in heaven how they must think about that. Look at man's justice. Look at man's justice. It's a travesty. Rarely ever is there real justice. And a lot of times you can develop 
kind of a victim mentality that, uh, you know, I'll never, I never can get ahead in life. The deck is stacked against me. Everybody's against me. And I want to remind you that life is inherently unfair, but God is just. And his grace, his favor is the great equalizer in our lives. Hallelujah. But whatever you have experienced, however unfairly, inequitable you have been treated, it pales in comparison to this. Because at some level, at some level, we deserve a lot of things. Maybe we're not completely at fault, but none of us is completely innocent. But he was. There was no sin. There was no fault in him. Jesus was not only sinless, he was perfect. Are listening to me? Hallelujah. Now, in Judea, it was a common practice in the first century at this time in history. It was a common practice to disintern the dead. Disintern means to like dig up those who had been buried, to, to, to retrieve the bodies of those who had died some time before. Take the mortal remains of the dead and to put their bones in a box and then rebury that box containing bones. The idea, I think, even goes back to Joseph, who told the Israelites, take my bones with you when you go into the promised land. So this was a common practice, actually throughout history, but especially at this time. And this box containing a dead man's bones was called an ossuary. An ossuary. In 1990... An ossuary, this box, this stone chest of bones, an ossuary was excavated near Jerusalem that contained the bones of a 60-year-old man. Carbon dating, like scientific testing, placed the age of those bones about the time of Christ. The side of the ossuary, that stone box that contained a man's bones, the side of the ossuary was inscribed with this name, Joseph, son of Caiaphas. And many archaeologists today are convinced this refers to Caiaphas of the New Testament, the high priest who instigated the arrest of Christ and presided over the hearing before the Sanhedrin. It's an amazing thing. But here's something even more amazing. Inside Caiaphas's ossuary, this box, were also found two twisted iron nails dating back to the first century. And microscopic, and this is true, I'm not making this up, microscopic analysis 
revealed slivers of wood and fragments of bone attached or embedded in those nails. We don't know, but they very possibly could be the nails, the very nails with which Christ was crucified. But here's the question. Why would Caiaphas be buried, or at least reburied, with the nails of the cross? Nobody knows. It's a mystery. It's peculiar. Maybe he was so riddled with guilt, he held on to them. I don't know. Or maybe in his mind, they were trophies of a great achievement, a prize that he held on to. Can't say. But one thing's for certain. The crucifixion of Christ was not just an ordinary event. Even in the minds of his enemies, it's something they never forgot. They were haunted with it forever. Are you listening to me? In Psalm 22, verses 17 and 18, we read this. I can count all of my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. They cast lots for my clothing. The first man, Adam, disobeyed God in a garden by partaking of the forbidden tree. And he instantly knew he was naked. And he hid himself. But God in his mercy clothed him. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, consecrated himself to obey God in a garden. And as a result, they stripped him of his clothing and attached him to a tree. And he was not hidden. He was exposed for all. The very robe the sick touched for healing became a prize for a game of dice. But the Bible tells me in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 that Christ despised the shame. One translation says he ignored, he ignored the disgrace that his death brought. He endured the humiliation of being stripped bare before his enemies because he could see you and I his family now clothed with his righteousness and endued with power from on high. Can I get an amen? amen? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Whew. Friend, that's love. That's love. When you, when you think about love, it's easy to think of pretty music and uh, 
lovely flowers and soft uh, lighting and, 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 and valentines. But you notice the lighting has to be very soft. If it's too bright, you might not love what you see. <laughs> and some people say, I love you, I love you, I can't live without you. And a few years later, they say, I can't live with you either. What am I going to do? <laughs> Shouldn't be that way. Maybe we need to realize that this is love. This is love. You know, sometimes we love to give gifts to people because we also can share in the gift. You know, give your wife chocolates knowing she'll only eat one or two, you know, and I can have the rest, you know. I'm always blessed when somebody gives my wife, you know, cake or chocolate. <laughs> if you want to give me money, like to pastor, I'm, I'm not playing psychological games with you. If you, <laughs> if you want to give money to like Pastor John and Jeppy, Give it to me when I'm alone, because otherwise I'll never see it. <laughs> but she, she wants you to know that she's spending it for my good, and she takes care of so many things, because it would be a shame for me to sleep on the floor on Good Friday, wouldn't it? <laughs> Amen. Let's go back to our text, if you're still here. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 again says this, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Now, honestly, propitiation is not a word that is very familiar to anybody here. How many of you here use the word propitiation today in a sentence? How many of you have no idea what that word even means? You're not, you're not alone. You're among friends. Amen. To propitiate means to appease, to satisfy the demands of justice, to regain favor, or to make peace, to propitiate, to appease, to satisfy the demands of justice, to regain favor, to make peace. So you must know this, Jesus did not die as a helpless victim of circumstances. He wasn't on the cross saying, I never thought it would end this way. Oh, wow, how sad. I always thought I'd die, you know, on a green meadow somewhere under a blue sky. No, he knew this is why I came. And he did not die as a martyr for a cause. He died as our substitute. The New International Version of Romans 3.25 says this, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. And in the NIV, at the bottom of the page, there's a footnote that reads this, the one who would turn aside his wrath, God's wrath, taking away sin, taking away our sins. The one who would turn aside his wrath, taking away our sins. And you know, many Christians secretly imagine, some not so secretly, but they imagine that God is angry with them because of their past 
wrongdoing. Many years ago, a brother uh, at one Bible study said this to me in America. He said this to me, I don't know who's out to get me more, God or the devil. In other words, he thought God was looking for an opportunity to punish him or take revenge on him. You know, like somebody plays a trick on you or, or does something mischievous. You say, I'll, I'll get you. You watch it. I'll get you. While you're sleeping, I'm going to get you. Meaning like, I'll, I'll take revenge on you. I'll, I'll play a trick on you. That's what he was saying. I don't know who's out to get me more. Who's, out, who's trying to trip me up? Who's, who wants to harass me? Who wants to attack me more? God or the devil? He's a Christian. Well, friend, if God wanted to get you, you would have been got a long time ago. (laughs) You wouldn't be here tonight. But Jesus is the propitiation. He is the one who turns aside the wrath of God. Friend, that means God's not angry with you. I think that deserves a better amen than that. God is not angry with you. Hallelujah. Because Jesus met the demands of justice. He satisfied the claims against us. And the punishment that we deserve came on him. Are you listening to me? In Isaiah 53 verse 11. And I'm going to read this particular verse out of a different translation. This is the OJB, the old Jewish Bible. And I'll read it exactly as it says. He, Hashem, shall see the travail of Moshaik's nefesh and be satisfied. Hashem means God the Father. Moshaik means Messiah. So in other words, he, the Father, shall see the travail of Messiah's, nefesh means soul. He shall see, God the Father shall see the travail, the anguish of his soul and be satisfied. I'm satisfied. Paid in full. It's done. It's complete. Hallelujah. And Jesus not only suffered for our sins, he took our sins and carried them away. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The easy to read version says this. And yet the Lord put all our guilt on him. That means not only are you forgiven. You don't have to live under a dark cloud of guilt anymore. Now there are many believers who when they fall into sin, when they take a misstep, a morally poor choice, when that happens, they immediately, their first response is to shrink from God, pull away from God. Even Christians who have earnestly repented and sometimes repeatedly asked God to forgive them, they still walk about looking forlorn and dejected with their heads held low 
as if God had forever cast them out of his presence. I'm talking about Christians who sinned, even the Christians who've asked, God, please forgive me, Lord. Please, I turn away from that. And yet many Christians try to punish themselves to find relief. So they, they think what I've done is so bad. I'm so, I'm so embarrassed. I, I, I feel my heart is so broken about this. So I have to punish myself. So maybe they'll sit at the back of the church. No insinuation toward all of you in the back, but I'm just saying maybe they'll sit in the back of the church and avoid any contact with other believers. Before the service ends, they'll leave. You know, they don't want to, don't want to shake anybody's hand and never smile, just kind of walk around sad for, forever. Or some will fast for days and days on time. Or they will lie uh, prostrate on, on the floor, just weeping and wailing. See, they're trying to punish themselves because of their past sin. Friend, there, there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And there's something to be said about being contrite. But on the other hand, if we have confessed our sins to him, according to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us, he's talking to believers, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And friend, if God says you're forgiven, then you are forgiven. You're not forgiven because you have punished yourself. Because the price that was paid so that you could be forgiven is not sitting in the back of the church or skipping dinner or not shaking someone's hand. The price that was paid so that you could be guilt-free was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We're not making light of sin. It's our sin that put Christ on the cross. But we are glorifying his grace and his mercy today. And by living as if you are rejected by God and he will never love you again, that does not honor the blood. But humbly receiving his mercy and rejoicing in his goodness, that honors the blood. Can I get an amen? Amen. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, it says, He made peace through the blood of his cross. There's peace tonight between your heart and heaven because of the blood. In July 1953, North and South Korea signed an armistice ending three years of brutal fighting, what is commonly called the Korean War. But they only agreed to suspend hostilities. They never signed a peace treaty. So technically, these two countries are still at war. And periodically, shots are fired across the border because there's... There's still that brewing feud between them. Now, some Christians seem to think that Jesus' death only brought a temporary suspension of hostilities, but that from time to time, heaven 
takes a few shots at you just to remind you how displeased God is with you. But that's not true. He made peace. There was a peace treaty between heaven and earth, and it was signed not with ink, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. God has reconciled you. He has restored you to favor with himself, and now you stand in a place of highest privilege because of the cross. Hallelujah. 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 Let me go just a little bit further before we partake of communion together. In Romans 3.25, that word propitiation is used. In Greek, it is the word hilasterion. Hilasterion. I didn't expect you to know that. I'm just telling you. And that Greek word is only found in one other verse. No, not the English word propitiation. But that Greek word is only found in one other verse in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5. And in that verse, it's translated the mercy seat. The mercy seat. God instructed Moses to build a tabernacle, basically a tent where his presence was confined. There were several compartments. The first compartment, of course, there's an outer court, but the first compartment is called the holy place. Only the priest could enter there. The innermost compartment behind the veil, the holy of holies, is where God's presence resided. The Hebrews called it Shekinah. In Hebrew, it literally means Jehovah lives in a tent. But behind the curtain, only the high priest could go once a year and not without blood. There in that small enclosed area was only one piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat was the lid on top of that box. The mercy seat is where the high priest sprinkled the blood. And that day, that day of sprinkling, that day of entering into the glory was called the day of atonement. Hallelujah. 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 So Christ is the mercy seat. His sacrifice is the atonement for us. What that means is we don't experience God's mercy just because he's good. If that's the only reason why we experience his kindness and mercy, then why isn't everybody saved since the Lord is good to all? It's only through the cross. Apart from the blood of Jesus, God can do nothing for you. I said, apart from the blood of Jesus, God can do nothing for you. Some people love to sing about and preach about his goodness, and rightfully so, but they don't talk about the reason for God's goodness. It's the cross. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. Can somebody say amen? Amen. And in Exodus chapter 25, verse 22, God said... There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant, 
So God told Moses, there, where the blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat, that's where I'll meet with you. You cannot have intimacy with God apart from the blood. You cannot have fellowship with the Father apart from the blood. Some people are talking about, you know, you know, the Lord loves me and I'm just communing with him and he's good to me. And that's all fine. That's wonderful. But without the blood, those are just meaningless words. He's not going to meet you in the place of your choosing. He's not going to meet you in the place of your preference. He said, I'll meet you where the blood is sprinkled. That's where I'll commune with you. That's where I'll walk with you. In other words, if you want to experience God's presence, make much of the blood. Talk about the blood of Jesus. Magnify the cross, the death and resurrection of Christ. That's where the spirit of God will move. I think it was Charles Wesley, the Methodist brother of John Wesley, who wrote many wonderful hymns. And in one of his hymns, he said, The glory follows the blood. That's true. The glory follows the blood. You want to have the presence of God in your life? Make much of the blood. Hallelujah. You want to see the glory in your church? Make much of the blood. Hallelujah. The glory follows the blood. After the sacrifices were made in the temple, the glory filled the house. It wasn't just their singing. It wasn't just their instruments. It wasn't the high priestly uniform, the costume they wore. It wasn't just the meeting. It wasn't just the assembly. It wasn't just the building. The glory follows the blood. That's why the enemy doesn't even want us to talk about the blood. That's why some modern thinking Christians don't even want to talk about the blood. Some, some churches, you know, some modernistic churches, you know, they don't want to sing anything about the blood. They said somebody might get offended. Listen, the only person that's going to be offended is the devil. I want him to be offended. Can I get an amen? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm almost done. I know you've heard that before. But I almost mean it this time. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25 again, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. But notice this phrase, to be received by faith. To be received by faith. Many translations, in fact, the Greek literally just says this, through faith in his blood. Through faith in his blood. Well, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if we don't ever preach on the blood, no one will ever hear about it. They'll never have faith in the blood. Then they won't experience all of the benefits of the blood. Hallelujah. Amen. We have faith in the word and we have faith in the name of Jesus. But we also must have faith in the blood. When we have faith in the promises of God, we are believing something he said he will do. But when we have faith in the blood, we are believing in something he's already done. Hallelujah. Are you out there today? One translation says it's faith that makes the blood efficacious, which means effective. It's faith that releases the power of the blood. It's faith 
that releases the benefits of Christ's sacrifice. God told the Israelites to sprinkle blood on the doorposts of their house. And he said, the blood will be a sign for you in Exodus 12, 13. What kind of sign? Well, if the police came to your house and they saw blood everywhere, they would know a homicide has been committed here. The blood indicated a death has occurred. God didn't say, when I see who's in the house, then I'll protect you. He said, when I see the blood on your house, then I'll protect you. And he said, as long as you stay in your house, I will not permit the enemy to touch you. In other words, stay under the blood. The safest place for you to be, my friend, is not America. It's not Europe. It's not Japan. The safest place for you to be is under the blood. And God said, I'll not allow the destroyer to come in your house and to touch you. Hallelujah. By faith, you need to apply the blood on your home. Faith in the blood. Hebrews says, by faith, they applied the blood with the hyssop branch. Like a long reed, you apply it with your faith, with your words. It's because of the blood. Hallelujah. And not only did the Israelites kill the Passover lamb, they were commanded to eat it. All of it. Leave nothing for the morning. And they did this for all. All the sacrifices they made. They not only brought their offering, their sacrifice to the priest who slew it and sprinkled blood on the altar. They then had to eat of that sacrifice. Why? If they're hungry, they can just go home and have dinner. Why? Let me read to you one more scripture. And this I promise. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Some translations say they have fellowship with the altar. Koinonia, partnership with the altar. By eating what was offered on the altar, they're symbolically identifying with the sacrifice. He is our atonement. Think about that English word for just a second. It's rather curious. Atonement. A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T. At one meant. At one meant. They became one with the sacrifice. We're not saved. We're not forgiven. We're not restored simply because we know Christ died. Even the devil knows that. We must accept him as our sacrifice. 
embrace him as our redemption and take him into ourselves to become at one with him. And he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And so we come to communion, not just a ritual, not just a tradition. When we partake of these communion elements tonight, we are exercising faith in the broken body and the shed blood. We are identifying with Christ because he died on the cross. I died with him. Because he was raised from the dead, now I have new life. I'm at one with him. Hallelujah. And so this evening, we have the communion elements with us. And I would encourage you to make certain that you do have those elements which we have in a convenient packet. And we have an open communion in our church, which simply means... If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, no matter who you are, member, visitor, whoever, you are welcome to partake in communion with us. Parents, if you have smaller children with you, I'll leave it up to you if they understand, if they're in a position that they can receive. But the Bible also tells us this. The Apostle Paul said, but let a man examine himself and then let, let him take of the cup and of the bread. So which means that we should do this with some seriousness, never frivolously. Because by doing so, we're dishonoring the blood. This juice is not Christ's blood. This wafer is not his body. But it represents it. It symbolizes his death for us. Eating a wafer and drinking juice doesn't save you. But faith in the death and resurrection of Christ and taking him into yourself, that is salvation. Would you bow your head with me this awesome night? Search your heart. As the psalmist said, search me and try me and know my ways. And see if there be any wicked way in me. As a believer, if we have failed him, and Lord knows we do, I speak from experience. Don't run from God, run to him. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And the Bible says he is the propitiation for our sins. We have one who pleads our case before the Father. So when we confess our sins as Christians, at the same time in heaven, there's a legal proceeding taking place. Our attorney speaks in our defense. He's never lost a case. And what evidence does he present before the high court of heaven but pierced hands and feet? And every case is dismissed. Father, we thank you for the price that was paid to make us whole. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. 
He was rejected so we could be accepted. He was shamed so we could live in honor. He was cursed so that we could be blessed. And he went to hell to take us to heaven. Thank you for the blood, for the mercy seat. Father, we thank you for the bread, which symbolizes his body that was broken for us. And we know that he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and with his stripes, we are healed. Thank you for the body of Jesus. If you'll open your container, let's take together. Let's hold up the cup. Paul calls this the cup of blessing because every blessing that heaven has to give is symbolized by what's here in our hands. It's the blood of Jesus. Father, we thank you for the blood that gives us boldness to enter into the holy place that we may come with a true heart in full assurance of faith, faith in the blood. Thank you for the blood that gives us access to the throne of grace. Thank you for the blood that cleanses us. That crimson love that flows from the Father's heart and silences the voices of doubt and condemnation in our hearts. Because of the blood, we are free in Jesus' name.